You are watching What's on the Telly with your hosts Lee W. Johnson and Reverend Kai. Welcome back to What's on the Telly, our exclusive supporters review of movies and series. And we do this twice a month for our supporters and we pick one for our public viewers. So if you would like to, if you actually enjoy these reviews and you'd like to see both of them each month, then hop on over to Patreon or buy me a coffee and support us and then you'll get all of them. It's fantastic. So what's on the telly is just Kai and myself reviewing movies and TV series that are magically related and we pick them to pick pick them apart and see what's what. And today we are doing the color of magic. Which <laughs> if you didn't know, is forms part of the Discworld from Terry Pratchett. And uh, this is actually a mini-series. I keep thinking movie, but it's, it was noted as being a mini-series because it was in two parts. Yeah. Um, this was made as a mini-series, and Hogfather was made as a mini-series. I don't know if that classes them uh, different for funding or something like that, but, I mean, mm. now that they're out and available, everybody just watches it as a movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Color of Magic is about three hours long in total, so I, was, I would think it's a mm. mini-series. But uh, I'm, I'm actually glad they did it that way because they could get more of the book into the movie. Oh, yeah. I'm glad they're longer. Mm. Uh, I, I'd rather have, you know, four or five hours of Discworld than just less than two. Don't do that, please. All the Discworld. All the Discworld. <laughs> <laughs> Don't break the Discworld. <laughs> no. No. Mm. Yeah, but I, I, this is one. This is one of the books I did read, so it was actually great to see all the the fun and fantastic bits that I loved in the book actually in the movie. And the the, the luggage was just oh yeah, that was my the favorite. The luggage was fabulous. <laughs> it was brilliant with a hundred legs. <laughs> so before we get too far into this, spoiler warnings. Of course, we're going to review the movie and talk about all sorts of bits. Mm. This is one. Where first you read the book, then you watch the movie, then you can watch this review. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best experience. It is absolutely worth it. Do so. The Discworld is wonderful. And this is the first book in the 42 book series. Oh, I don't know if that's the right number. 41, maybe? So it's a great place to start. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hopefully they'll bring movies out for all of them. Oh, that would be wonderful. Can you imagine? 41, 42 movies. Yes! Yes, yes, yes! <laughs> Miniseries! So they could be like four hours long! Yes, yeah. yes, yes! <laughs> <laughs> That's a big budget. <clears throat> I, I would uh, join a Patreon or a GoFundMe for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think many, many people would. I will put... My money in the hat. I know uh, Sir Terry Pratchett is not on the earthly plane with us anymore to be in the movies and muck about with the uh, videos, but I bet Neil Gaiman would help. Mm. Mm. Neil, putting it out there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gaiman's one of my favorites as well. Oh, yeah. 
we gotta do um yeah, good, good omens. omens. Yeah, I've got the book. Mm -hmm. Right, so I've got to get the book now. I got that one. Oh, yeah, that's not a cover I've seen before, but there's so many, so many different covers of that book. Yeah. It's one of those ones who's gone through lots of publishings. Mm. I love the book. I, I must say, I, I started watching the series. I've got to just push through because for some reason, I don't know, I was watching the first episode and I just couldn't get through it. Mm. Because I like the book so much, I don't know. I will force myself. Anyway, color of magic. Your your love of Martin Sheen and David Ten Tennant didn't just carry you through. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I see David Tennant as Doctor Who, and that's about it. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I watched a bunch of his early British stuff before he was cast as Doctor Who, so mm. I didn't didn't see him that way. But anyways, this is not a review of Good Omens. This yeah. is a review of The Color of Magic. The Color of Magic, yes. And it's... talking about actors, ah, Tim Curry, Jeremy Irons, Christopher oh. Lee, Sean Astin. Oh. I mean, this, this is an awesome cast of people who ply their crafts well. Ah, oh, so Jeremy, awesome. Jeremy Irons is just one of those actors that I have absolutely loved for years oh, yeah. and years. He's yeah, it's just brilliant. He really is. Just everything he does. Mm. Uh, yeah, Sean Astin, Tim Curry, Jeremy Irons, everything they do, I want to watch. Mm. Absolutely. Even though some of Sean Astin's roles aren't that great, he's a wonderful actor. He's really good at what he does. Mm. Really good. Don't, I'm not really that keen on... Uh, what's Tim, Tim Curry? Uh, let me just double check so I get the right person. Yeah, Tim Curry. Not that keen on Tim Curry. He kind of creeps me out a bit. <sighs> Blasphemy! Blasphemy! Brilliant actor. <laughs> I don't know. It's just something about him just creeps me out. <laughs> well, he he plays slightly creepy villains very well. Yeah, no, he does very well. Yeah. Yeah. But was, yes, star-studded cast. Was this? Oh, and uh, go ahead. Death. Was it? It's the same one that was in Hogfather, uh, Christopher Lee, uh -huh. as the voice. Christopher Lee is the voice and the same actor. Uh, Marnix Vanderbroek, I think that's how you say his last name. Yeah. Uh, and this is the same director as in Hogfather 2, uh, Vadim Jean. I mean, lots and lots of the same people. Mm. Oh, and, and Brian Cox is the narrator. I love Brian Cox's acting. I didn't know, like, his voiceover work was so cool. So, you know, that's great too. And um, David Bradley plays Cohen the Barbarian. Oh, and he's yeah. such a good Cohen. <laughs> he's so great. He was, he was I love it. perfect depiction of Cohen from the books. Now, uh, James Cosmo, they cast as Galder Weatherwax, Archchancellor Weatherwax. And that is not how I pictured Archchancellor Weatherwax at all. Mm. But he does fine. I, I like his performance and I like I like how it all works together. Of course, I don't like that he dies at the end, but you know, mm. it had to happen. Um, the head librarian, uh, I read this book a while back and I, I, mm. for some reason, I keep thinking that the head librarian was an orangutan all the way through. This is the story when he gets turned into an orangutan. 
So this is when the the Octavo starts going through all the floors, and that mm -hmm. magic turns him into a orangutan. Yep. Oh. Yep. He's he's kind of orangutan-y beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The beard uh, and everything, and the way he moves. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he. This is a story where he gets turned into an orangutan, and it's not too much later in the series where they figure out maybe how to turn him back, mm -hmm. and he says no. Yeah. He doesn't want to be turned back, so mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly which book that is in, but I know it's pretty early on, by the fifth or sixth book, something like that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I just couldn't remember him so as I say I thought for some reason I kept thinking he was an orangutan right from the beginning I don't remember that part where he changes so that was a bit well, confusing for me it's so early on in the great Discworld story mm. <laughs> so early on this is like history in the rest of the Discworld this book yeah you know a lot of it is is back in the past how in the world Rincewin acquired the luggage and, you know, what happened when our Chancellor Weatherwax was there and screwed stuff up. Um, <laughs> all sorts of things. <laughs> but don't think that the Discworld series goes in chronological order because it does not. No. Nope. Nope, nope. <laughs> that, 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 also, that also confused me when I was reading the books because I expected it to go from story to story to story. You know, carry on the story. And then yeah, all of a sudden... No. It jumps right back to, like, a hundred years before, <laughs> or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So. And uh, then there's, in the Weird Sisters, when it like goes, back and forth all the time in the same book. Yeah. And it's just all over everywhere, and it doesn't always. It's not like these two things are running parallel in time. It's just like mm -hmm, <laughs> all over the timeline. Yeah. <laughs> It kind, of, it kind of messed a bit with my logical mind, my OCD. But, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in the movies, and uh, this happens in all of the Terry Pratchett movies, because uh, there is this thing in the disc world where each, like, group of people uh, kind of mm, tends to when the fashions and the styles and the living conditions of when the thing they're into was at its height. Mm. So they look like from all different time periods, but it's because they're kind of navigating naturally flowing to that kind of energy, which I think is really, really interesting. I picked up on that after a lot of reading in the disc world that it had that sort of thing, especially after moving pictures. But to see that depicted so well in the movies is wonderful because they, they tell that story just through costuming and, and scenic, scenery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, super awesome. Yeah. But time is wibbly-wobbly. It's not a straight line. <laughs> it's very wibbly-wobbly in this as well. Yes, extremely. Um, Which is, you know, one of those witchy things. Yeah, that that comes through really well in the color of magic and all these movies and books. That time is not 
not just this straight line that runs on at this steady pace and you can do nothing with it, but you can kind of mush it around and it's kind of thin in some spots and thicker in others, mm. you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I think Pratchett's, um, he was just a marvelous writer and, you know, how he brings these characters to life in your mind while you're reading and all mm -hmm. the events and stuff. But I've got to say, the at the end of the Color of Magic, when the little new hatchling Discworlds like break out of their eggs. Oh yeah, they're so In the cute. movie, it's just freaking amazing. It really is. They they really did that extremely well. Yeah, um, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, and they're cuddling up to mum. <laughs> 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 And the philosophers who are trying to, what was it, the, I can't remember what it's Astrozoologists. Astrozoologists who are trying to figure out what sex the turtle is. And then they yeah. finally decide, okay, well, we know what sex it is now. Ah, but is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, they always have more questions. Yes. It's always the one resource they're not short of. Well, let's talk about the color of magic. I don't know if they, I don't think they actually name it in the movie. I'm not sure if it's named in this book or if it shows up later, but Rincewind does point it out. Mm. They're standing on the edge of the disc and they're watching the falls go over the side and there's like rainbows, you know, like you get in front of a waterfall and Rincewind's standing there with two flower and he points out and he says, you see that eighth color. That's the color of magic, mm. which to us, we go, oh, cool, you know, it's the eighth color, but we only assume that because we already know there are seven colors in a rainbow. Yeah. And so it is an interesting illusion that only makes sense outside of the disc world. Mm. Because if there are eight colors in a rainbow, then it wouldn't be that eighth color that you could immediately pick out. Yeah. Um, but. But now, getting a bit technical, isn't the eighth color octarine? Yeah, they call it octarine. Yeah. Or no. octarine. I don't know. I've only read it in a book. <laughs> um, now, if anybody's interested, and especially interested in chaos magic, I was trying to find it here. The the book in the movie is called The Octavo, mm -hmm. and Peter J. Carroll wrote a book called The Octavo, a sorcerer, oh. scientist, grimoire, and it's the inspiration from Carroll's book came from from Pratchett and the Discworld. Cool. Um, so if anybody's interested in, what, in reading that, that's the title, you can go find it. Um, I haven't read this book myself. I did start reading it a while back. I need to. It's very mathematical. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. I haven't read that. It kind of breaks my brain a bit. <laughs> so, the magical number in the Discworld is eight. Mm. Which, you know. Which fits in so well with chaos magic, which is why 
Carol likes right. likes the Discworld so much. Mm -hmm. And and there are lots and lots of things that transport right over to not the Discworld, to regular Mundania, that make that eight special. But I think the early on attachment to color, and especially the refraction of light, and the rainbow is very interesting because we have a whole thing with rainbows and the number seven and its association with heavenly skyward type ideas, that kind of light mysticism, both as not dense and as in shiny and bright, you know, all of that kind of stuff is wrapped up with the number seven, the kind of rainbow colors, that sort of thing. And reading this book made me think for the first time, is that because of rainbows? Mm. Is that because when we watch water refract light, we can perceive seven colors? And so that the word octarine makes me think of like a blue color for some reason, like a oh. blue purple. It's kind of obvious to but the logic in my mind says that the eighth color is magenta because there's no, if you look at the spectrum of light, right? If you go below violet, that's, or above violet, that's ultraviolet. There's nothing up there that we can see. It's outside of our visual range. And if you go below red, that's infrared. There's nothing down there that we can see. It's outside of our visual range. So if you put those two together, if you close the loop, you get magenta. And magenta is something our brains fill in because we cannot see that wavelength of light. It doesn't exist. It's not because it's in between. If you were to go exactly between the two wavelengths of light, you wouldn't end up at magenta. You'd end up at kind of an orangey yellow color in the middle. Mm. Right? So I always thought that that was, you know, that's why it was the color of magic because it's not really there, but it is really there. Yeah. It's the thing that, that folds that perception of linearness back on itself and makes it into a three-dimensional circle. It's the connection point on the Mobius strip mm. that turns time on its head. And that's part of the reason wizards can see things that are really there because they can perceive that eighth color. Okay. Which is... I, that was probably super technical. No, that but, was actually uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. That was my my headcanon early on reading these books and being like, ah, real magic. So my, my immediate thought was that the eighth color would go into the ultraviolet range. But yeah, that makes more sense now. That they actually fold, fold in, in on each other. Damn, now you got my brain thinking. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's working overtime now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll pause when the smoke comes out. <laughs> yeah, might take a while to stop. <laughs> yeah. um, I've got to grow my beard like uh, Rince Wind as well. That little 
curl. Oh, I love the little curl yeah. down on the bottom. It's sticking out. Gotta do that. <laughs> I loved it when, uh, just to get completely off the magical stuff, I loved it when uh, he's having a conversation with Co Cohen about, um, what was the, his girlfriend's name, the young girl? Oh. I can't remember her name. Or... I don't remember her name. Uh, I'll find it while I'm talking. Um, but he's having a conversation about that he's going to marry this young 20-year-old and he's like an elderly person, you know? Isn't he worried about stamina and all of this? And, and Cohen sits there and says, hmm, good point, thanks for bringing that up. Let's hope she's got enough, enough energy to carry on going. Yep, yep. Uh, Bethan. That yeah. Bethan, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love that, that scene. That's really cute. Mm. I also love the idea the setup for all of this that uh, Rincewind has been a perpetual student. He's never actually made first grade wizard. Mm. You know, he's never managed it. And it's because early on when he was a very young student, he was dared to touch the octavo, you know, and like one of the spells jumped into his head and now all the other spells are scared of being in there with it. Yeah. <laughs> so he can't learn any magic because his head's full of the spell from the octavo. Mm. But I love his approach to it. You know, after 40 years of living with this spell in his head and just being an utter failure at magic, he's like, and I didn't even get the beer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's quite, that's quite interesting also because it's, it's a bit, um, you know, he, he can't learn magic. So for 40 years, he's remained this student that's been pushed around because he's stupid and he can't. He well, can't, they assume he's stupid. He's, they assume he's stupid. Yet he's probably, he's the most powerful magician around there because he's got this freaking powerful spell stuck in his head. It's, it's, mm -hmm. And it's staying there because he's trusted enough to actually keep it safe. Well, he doesn't use it, mm. which is seems to be part of what the Octavo wants, the eight spells. You know, they don't want to be used in the wrong way. They have the a sense person. of morality. Mm. Yeah. And instead, every once in a while, it uses him, which might explain Rincewind's um, amazing speed and alacrity at running away from everything. Mm. He is the wizard that cannot be killed <laughs> because one of the spells of the octavo is in there keeping him alive. Mm. Um, like when he falls off the side of the disc and then somehow lands back on the disc. Oh, well, that was the octavo that saved him though. Yep. That was the octavo that saved him. The octavo mm. saved him when he was falling in the Vernberg. <laughs> the octavo saved him. A lot of times, because it was just like, ah, oh, my flesh vessel is dying again. Dumbass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just rewrite reality. Fix yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> now the Octavo is inside the luggage by the end of the movie. And um, it's sapient oh, yes. pear wood. Oh, yeah, because it comes flying down and then gets swallowed by the luggage, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So the sapient pearwood that has a sense of loyalty that extends to eating anything that's a danger to whatever it's bonded to mm-hmm. <laughs> now has the most powerful spell book in the known universe somewhere inside. Yeah. And right <laughs> at the end, it becomes untethered to anybody mm-hmm. because Rinse Winds because gives it its own or makes it its own master. Yeah. Mm. Well, Two Flower does say, you know, the luggage doesn't really belong to anyone. Mm. But, but has, you know, passed on to somebody. Yeah. And Rincewind is, you know, I give you to yourself. Mm. But then it looks like a happy little puppy following him, too. No, he's no. like, okay, I guess you can come. <laughs> see the little waggy tail. <laughs> yep. yep. Oh, it's brilliant. But I love the idea of the counterweight continent. <laughs> the way that Two Flower just explains it as if it's perfectly normal. You know, why doesn't the disc tip over? Well, there's a counterweight continent that weighs as much as all of the other land masses combined. <laughs> and it's on the other side of the disc. So it keeps it balanced. And then the reason it weighs that much is because, like, it's just gold. Gold everywhere. And he's like, well, it's not really made of gold, but gold is very abundant and so when he he decides to be a tourist he's just got tons and tons and tons of gold and valuable money that he takes with him to the other side of the disc you know and everybody's like oh and he's just like whatever you know throw it around (laughs) just it's just gold you pick it up off the ground when you're walking around on the counterweight continent Uh, but it does beg the idea that if tourism became an industry the disc would tip over because if you took too much gold off the counterweight continent and moved it to the other one yeah which is probably why they never had tourists before gotta keep the balance yeah I'm sure Lord Vertinari will figure that out now that there is a guild for tourism Uh, (laughs) even though that the the new head of the guild doesn't know what it is yet. No, hasn't figured out. Just knows it's got to create one, a guild. Make a guild. <laughs> Step two, put someone in charge of it that uh, the patrician can exploit. Yeah. I guess he's not Lord Veterinary, he's a patrician. Yeah. Lots then, of, well, yeah. Then step three, figure out what the hell the guild is for. Yes. Right, right. That'll happen. They'll get there. It'll <laughs> happen in time. <laughs> Uh, death, death comment. Um, I think I'm having a, a near rinsewind experience. <laughs> death is always hanging around, like, okay, it's time. It's your time now. It's really your time. Uh, you know. And then the octavo is just like, nope. <laughs> so we get a pretty good look at the wizards and uh, the unseen university, and kind of how magic works there is very much a dark side to the wizards in um the disc world there can only be eight heads of departments in the unseen university and then one arch chancellor so actually it's kind of like you know odin eight plus one Mm. is nine but um but the only way that uh a wizard rises his rank is by vacating the position above him. So there's a lot of murder and cunning and it kind of explains why wizards, especially older wizards, 
are skittish creatures who are scared of everything <laughs> because apparently they're they're in constant threat of being murdered by their fellow wizards all the time yeah. plus the general dangerousness of magic in the disc world the wizards go around you know pretending to to know things and how to do things and how to manage magic but really they're terrified of the octavo that they have chained in the basement. Mm -hmm. They're terrified of several other magical things. <laughs> and when we get to, to their counterparts, the witches, uh, the witches have a much different approach to magic. Mm -hmm. But over the entire arc of the Discworld story, we find out that wizards and witches are two sides of the same coin. They're both still working with this force that is just simply part of the laws of the Discworld. Yeah. It's just there. Magic is real. And on we go. Same force, just different different approaches. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's it's um, the same compa well, comparison with uh, low magic and high magic that we have in many ways. Because the witches, yeah. witches would be the low magic and the uh, wizards would be the high magic. Kind of the kind except of general view that people have of those those concepts. The general view, except underneath, it's very different. Mm. The wizards actually end up doing lots of low magic things to manifest little physical things. And the witches actually end up doing lots of high magic, stuff that affects the entire disc and changes the course of history. But isn't that how it is with us? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Mm. Yeah. You know, we have this general concept of low and high magic, which is kind of broad. Um, yeah. But underneath, there's all these little things that start ha happening, and they all get mixed up and muddled and whatnot. Yeah, I never have liked that distinction between low and high magic. One, because the terminology itself implies a bias mm. to begin with. And, you know, that's not not really a good idea when you're working with something like magic you should should be divesting yourself of those biases and those preconceived notions as best you can mm -hmm. uh, because the more baggage you bring with you the less you actually see so and, and it's the same thing with black and white magic i hate that division even more yeah you know because it's not black and white it's eight bloody colors there's an extra one in there that you can't even see yep. you know it's it's more than a a spectrum it's a whole ball pie wibbly wobbly thing you mm. know magic can't be confined to dualities like that mm. and so uh i hear a lot of times like low magic is personal and high magic is universal when really they're the other way around High mm. magic is usually all focused on the self, and low magic is often focused on other people. You know, community. You know, community work, um, healing work, that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, so I understand the need, especially when you are learning about the vastness that is the world of, of magical operations and understanding as cosmology, even if you're in just one culture let alone comparing them, you need to start categorizing things because the human mind needs to categorize things. That's how we, we start to make sense of things. We break it down 
and put it in boxes. And then we go take that box and break it down and put it in boxes. That's just kind of how we process stuff as humans. So I understand that the first thing is usually to break things into to halves and compare them. And you end up with these dualities. But man, don't stop there uh, mm. because it doesn't serve. Yeah. It doesn't help to keep it so simple like that. I think to begin with, you need to take a concept, a, a broad concept, and pull it apart, understand all its working bit, bits, and then put it back together again and understand how those bits work together. Yeah. Um, but it's, well, only, it's only when you understand how the bits work, you can understand the whole concept. You know, and pull it apart. You should break it in two. You should break it in three. You should break it in four. You should break it in five. You should try all these different possibilities and arrangements. That's why numbers are important in magic. Mm. That's why they have significance. Because when you break something into two, you experience the understanding of duality. And you experience what antagonism is and what magnetism is and some of these fundamental forces that are part of uh, the base laws of magic. I mean, sympathetic magic comes from the understanding of duality, mm. you know, and that duality is in comparison to the one, the idea of union. And if you're coming from union, you're breaking and dividing. If you're going towards union, you're, you're adding, you're unionizing, you're bringing together. You know, and then when you break it in three, you experience another set of power dynamics and, and learn about trinity and movement and that sort of thing. And on and on and on and on, mm. you know, through the, the base numbers and all of these ideas. I think that's one of uh, the good ways to learn numerology early on is take concepts and experiment with how... Um, divisions and numerology affect that concept and use same concept all the way through yeah. and then put it back together and the disc world is a good demonstration of eight yeah. <laughs> what happens with eights um just to actually i don't know if this would actually help anybody um there's a book called the ancient wisdom by jeffrey ash uh it actually examines numbers throughout history, throughout different cultures and stuff. I think this, hmm. I'm sure this was the one. Um, very good book though, just in case anybody wants to. I'm just try and get the light right there. There you go. Um, it's one of those books that don't come up very often, but excellent book. I actually need to read that again. So I'm putting that one there as well. So all these books in this pile in this pile right <laughs> the great piles the great great many piles in fact i don't think yes. jeffrey ash comes up very often um i have not heard the name before i am definitely going to look that book up yeah excellent stuff right? uh it does say on the back here in its breadth scholarship and timelessness oh, sorry timeless fascination Jeffrey Ash's The Ancient Wisdom ranks alongside Robert Graves as, shouldn't it be Graves, The White Goddess as a revelation of the deepest wellsprings of human knowledge and power. Um, oh. Yeah, and we're seeing that we're doing, well, I'm not sure where this is going to air, so we're doing or have done um, <laughs> the uh, Robert Cochran letters and etc., which uh, ties in very 
very specifically with the white goddess so yeah might have been interesting yeah. book to actually pick up i think the white goddess is on um one of those you at least need it for historical reference if mm. you're going to be a witch that works in any sort of european related paradigm yeah. any of those cultures in that area so it, it's it can be a slog it's one of those ones where people are like you know oh how am i gonna get through it's not as bad as a golden bow but that's the one i've got the golden bow i'm trying to remember what the other title was yeah the golden bow and the white goddess go together there yeah are, but, are you sitting in a great pile of books because you you I've look a, around i've got one of my bookcases on my left here and it's like two books deep and two books high on each shelf <laughs> so whenever you yeah. mention a book i'm like i know that's somewhere in here <laughs> <laughs> but i think i think the white goddess i actually need to find a copy again i don't think i have that anymore yeah need to pick that up again um i did just realize looking on imdb that but seeing that we're, we're discussing the color of magic um, we are yeah <laughs> we really are <laughs> <laughs> part two is actually the light fantastic oh yeah so this is actually two, uh, two of the books yeah they put the two books together book one and book two mm. okay. and i like that they did that because uh when you read them the the resolution of why are we heading towards the star mm. is in the light fantastic yeah it definitely carries on so yeah. yeah i'm surprised they managed to pack enough um of the book into that time period then you know that oh yeah that means the color of magic was was a movie length and light fantastic was movie length yeah there are also two of the shorter Discworld books I uh, just compare comparing them over the arc. They get longer and longer and longer, which is fine with me. And most of the people like the Discworld. Yeah. <laughs> We're like just more and more and more. Take us back to that world. <laughs> yeah. As far as magic and witchcraft go in this, I think it's it's just chock a block. I mean, we were saying when we when we reviewed the Hogfather that um, Prashit brings a lot of witchcraft into his books um, mm -hmm. but he did it in such a way that was so subtle that it's kind of like these hidden gems and you have to pick them to pick them apart and try and figure out how they relate to actual reality and, and well our reality as opposed to the disc world itself which is why fiction is so important in a witchcraft education mm, and storytelling why storytelling is so important because it gets in doorways and nooks and crannies in your mind that nonfiction can't. Mm -hmm. If somebody presents a belief or an idea that you already have a counterpoint to, you'll stop it. You won't let it in. Mm -hmm. You won't let it find its tentacles into your mind and, and grow new ideas. Storytelling doesn't have that problem. It can seep in under the edge of the door and Pratchett does it very skillfully. Mm. These ideas about the fundamental way that magic affects the world and what it is like to live in a world where magic is real and everybody knows it. 
Mm. You know, it, it affects the culture, it affects behavior, it affects understanding. And we, we see a really good illustration of that with Rincewind and the dragons. Mm. Two Flower wants to go see dragons. Rincewind's like, ha ah, dragons don't exist. Well, nobody believes them anymore, yeah. Right. And it turns out that belief is kind of a necessary thing to keep the dragon functional, especially when you're thousands of feet in the air and flying on the back of one. Mm. Yeah. And Rince, even confronted with seeing a dragon, riding on a bloody dragon, Rincewind doesn't believe. Mm. So he cannot access that part of things. But he's a wizard. <laughs> he's yeah. been in the Unseen University for 40 years. He's been exposed to all of these ideas about magic. He's watched magic happen. He's studied all of these things, but he believes in magic and he doesn't believe in dragons. Well, I mean, that's very much how it is with us as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, as witches and magicians, we believe that we believe in magic. We believe uh, in the gods, but do we believe in unicorns? You know, some point Did unicorns had to be reality because otherwise they wouldn't have been brought into existence in the first place and nobody would even know what a unicorn is. Right. You know, well, even if, even reference. If, yeah, even if it's a reference to something different, but, you know, a yeah. unicorn exists in people's reality. You made but it. that's also a point that Pratchett makes with the Hogfather. When the auditors are talking to him, they're like, ask anybody on any street corner. They'll give you an approximate description. They'll tell you where he lives. Mm. Whether they've seen him or they believe or not, they already know the story. Just like with unicorns. Mm. So the interaction of belief and magic is very skillfully woven together yeah. uh, in these stories. And it's one of those things that if I were to just sit down and say, you have to believe that you believe or you can't believe, everybody would just be like, what? <laughs> but if you read the Discworld, you can understand it intuitively. You don't have to try to make a logical statement out of it mm. and wrap your brain around it. Um, I think also reading the Discworld, um, and I'm sure there's other books, series that do this well, but it helps you figure out the wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing instead of trying to wrap your head around it. You just intuitively follow. Yeah. You know, you, you let yourself suspend disbelief, which allows things in that you wouldn't let in otherwise. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of series. I'm thinking of uh, Doctor Who, actually. Mm. Yeah. On that well, note... but. <laughs> I mean, straight up front, Doctor Who is wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. That's just, where we take that quote from. I'm just going to pull something out Another of my book. bookcase here. <laughs> Another book. And that goes everything else. This, actually, um, Doctor Who, 13 Doctors, 13 Stories, it's a series of um, stories that have been written by different people, like uh, Ian Koffler, Neil Gaiman... Uh, I'm just trying to, Marcus Sedgwick. I'm trying to think, uh, pick up some of the authors I immediately recognise, but it's actually it's brilliant. I didn't like the first um, story, but it's thirteen stories basically. The first one was written by Ian, Ian Colfer, 
didn't really like it. But the rest of them are incredible, and there's um, the way some of these some of these authors actually talk about time and everything is like it really gets you thinking, mm-hmm. you know. So I know everybody goes for, goes for the nonfiction stuff or well, nonfiction books because you know that's where all the facts are. But bloody hell, the fiction stuff, you know. Read the fiction. Uh, you need both. You absolutely need both for a good yeah, witchcraft education. Yeah. <laughs> that goes in the to read pile. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember that one. <laughs> well, and, and that's another thing for a lot of people, the story will stick with you. Mm. Whereas the nonfiction book probably won't. Yeah. And also You'll have to so go back opinions. and reference it. Yeah, I think with, yeah. The, with the non-fiction stuff, there's so many opinions, and that's why people are bringing in so many books because everybody mm. has their own opinion. But when yeah. it comes to fiction, you can examine it in a completely different way that doesn't require an opinion. You know, it's just it's just a an examination of of a theory, but it doesn't mean that the author actually believes in it necessarily it just means that they're just examining this this idea right which makes it so much easier to actually absorb yeah well you know nonfiction is looking at things with an electric light under a microscope mm. but fiction is sitting by the fire the candlelight mm. it's it's a softer more malleable view and allows for many things to creep in and seep in Mm. Um, into the story, into ourselves, into our understandings. So mm. very important. So very important. Yeah. And I think I think Neil Gaiman does it pretty well as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Clive Barker, but he's got a bit more of a twisted mind. I don't know if you've ever read Weave World, Clive Barker. Um, it's just, I don't think so. It's just one of those stories that... It's about a carpet... And the carpet is an entire world. And one young guy gets um, wrapped up in this carpet and enters this world. And, and then the two worlds start to bleed together. And it's just absolutely... Huh. I mean, but Clive, cool. ba- Clive Barker has a, such a twisted imagination. The monsters um, that come out of him. <laughs> I would say another person that weaves that story well in an understanding and just lets the realness seep into your bones is Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, uh, He doesn't write books. He produced movies and started Studio Ghibli. But all of those Miyazaki movies, I I highly recommend is uh, very appropriate viewing material for witches because they are a world where animism is just de facto. Mm. But there are contrasts against it. He, you know, he puts in the modern worlds that are devoid of it and explores all of these wonderful topics um, about what magic is and how the underlying world works, what it is to interact with spirits, uh, lots and lots of things like that. Spirited Way is one that made it big here in the States uh, with English translations, Mm. but all of his movies, Castle in the Sky, House Moving Castle, Princess Mononoke, just on and on. Maybe not Porco Rosso, uh, but <laughs> his most of his body of work that is concerned with 
with magical ideas. And the great thing about Miyazaki's movies is, save for things like Porco Rosso, the vast majority of them that are witchcraft related are totally appropriate kids' movies. Mm. You can sit there with your toddler or your, your primary school kid and watch these movies again and again and learn lots of witchy things and they will definitely enjoy the characters and the stories and the animation and the little songs. I love the little songs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, My Neighbor Totoro and Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle mm. required viewing for witches. Yeah, I'd say the Terry Pratchett movies are also required watching for witches. So mm. that's a good list. Also, good family movies. Yeah, you know? definitely, definitely. They're, they're very good family movies. They're deep themes. They're uh, sometimes very intense themes. Mm. But, you know, don't, don't shy away from that stuff. Uh, kids need to experience those kinds of things in safe ways, too, to learn how to deal with them. Mm. Humans like emotional practice, you know. Mm. We need to experience the little things. We have to believe the little lies before we can believe the big ones. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, back to the hog father. <laughs> yeah, well, lot, lots of nuggets of wisdom in Pratchett's books and movies. Lots yeah. of nuggets of wisdom. Yeah. And they're so quotable. Wonderfully qu quotable. He wraps things in language that look like putting, you know, that beautiful puff pastry and frosting and everything on that little dessert that make you look at it and go, I want to eat that. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> Uh, and Conan, Conan the Barbarian when they're they're at the what was it the horse horse the people. horse people uh, and they're carrying on about his conquests and everything else and he goes what are the three things you value most hot water good dentistry soft laboratory paper <laughs> yep yep yeah yeah so. In uh, The Color of Magic, Cohen is 87 at that point. Because at one point he says, oh, if I were 20 years younger, I'd be 67. Um, <laughs> and he's still adventuring. And everybody knows the great legends of Cohen the Barbarian. And they think he's some great big huge dude, but like he's 87. <laughs> <laughs> but he still wins his fights. <laughs> right, he still wins fights because an old fighter has learned how to fight. Mm. <laughs> But it's think, not just brute yeah. force anymore. Most of, most of it was just coincidence, I think, because you know, he, he lifts his arm and knocks somebody in the face, and then lifts yep. his other arm and knocks somebody else. But when he's when he's yep. fighting that woman, um, the, with before the ferry, his back goes out. <laughs> yep, yep. He's just stuck, and his back goes out. Ah, mm. oh, getting old sucks. Yeah, <laughs> but I love. I love the, the valuation on life. You know, the others are like to burn their village and hear the lamentations of their women before you and to trample your enemies and so on and so on. And the old fighter says, mm, hot water, dentistry, soft blue paper. <laughs> <You know? laughs> those, those are the important things in life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> He's lived it all now. And, if, and the, the sapient pearwood luggage hears that and is like, oh, Here's some soft loo paper. <laughs> <laughs> lure, him, lure him outside to go and save everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and, and with good form, Cohen's like, whoa, wait, what? 
and follows it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the druid sacrifice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, she's pissed off. Yeah. Three, three years! Three years I worked on this. I could have been drinking mead with the moon goddess except for you, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love that part. Not yeah. everybody's happy to be saved. Some of them wanted to do what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the the interesting little thing that the imp in the camera says uh, when they end up at Death's house, and Two Flowers just taking pictures because he's a tourist. Oh yeah, you know, and um, he's like, you know, no more black. Uh, <laughs> Because he's out of black because they were in Death's house. Sort of monochrome, yeah. you know. <laughs> but he points out the camera imp. He's like, you see what you see. I paint what I see. Mm. And it's a brief commentary about, you know, the, the truth of the camera. Uh, Pratchett goes into it much more in detail in moving pictures uh, when the Discworld invents movies and that sort of thing but it is you know that reminder that our perception of reality is despite our best efforts still individual yeah. and the camera imp is magical not because there's a little dude in it but because you get to see someone else's reality and it's only in brief glimpses. It's not with experience and movement and everything else. It's just these snapshots, these bursts of insight, mm. these bursts of connection. And Rincewind is um, miffed by this. You know, he wants, he thinks, one, taking pictures is dumb. Why don't you just remember? Yeah. <laughs> right? But Two Flowers' perspective is you haven't been somewhere until you've come back. Yeah, until you've gone home. Mm. It is the processing and remembering of the experience that turns it into an experience. Mm. It's sharing it with others. And so Two Flower is making a recording of that. And that makes me think of the progress through the craft that when we're learning the craft especially early on all we're thinking about is there's so much to learn and this is so cool and i want to learn the next thing then we're practicing it how do i apply it how do i do something with it but mm. then there comes a point where we realize somebody passed this on to me i'm gonna have to pass it on to somebody else i have to share this and it changes the quality of the experience you have to go there and back again. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we talk about the crooked path and how lonely it is and that sort of thing, but we have to realize that we walk back on it. We return mm -hmm. and we return to pick up other people. Mm -hmm. We return for that connection. We return to turn it into an experience. And also, I mean, with the filters that we have, uh, two people's experiences are the same thing are completely different whereas mm -hmm. the picture captures the moment and there is no yeah. there's no filters 
Uh, well. Well, unless you're on TikTok. Um. <laughs> <laughs> just, just the sheer act of capturing the moment and removing it from the flow of time and removing it from the other experiences to isolate it to a single sense, a visual sense, mm. is a filter. Mm. You know, but we can also capture time in sound. We make recordings. Uh, we can capture time in scent. We make perfumes. Mm. We capture time in taste. We recreate recipes so that they taste just the same as we remember, which I have high suspects about how accurate memory is, especially when it comes to smell and taste, because those are intimately linked with the recording of memory. And we know that every time we bring up a memory, we relive it and write over it. Mm. <laughs> we don't go back to the original. We're constantly editing that save file and writing over the original. So, you know, that whole, oh, I want that casserole just like, you know, Mamaw made. Well, your memory is an emotional memory. Yeah. Because that's what is recorded with memory. So you're constantly tweaking this recipe to try to get it to taste like Mamaw made when it probably isn't at all what Mamma made, but you think it is. Yeah, it's just like the burnt toast that uh, we used to make on the caravan in England when I was a little kid. It's just amazing with the, the jam and the butter. Can't make mm -hmm. burnt toast like that ever again. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. There's that quote from Rincewind about uh, how two flower sees the world. Um, that's old two flower for you. He just appreciates beauty in his own way. I mean, if a poet sees a daffodil, he stares at it and then writes a long poem. But Two Flower would wander off and buy a book on botany, and then as he's reading, as he reads it, he would tread on the daffodil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, he does appreciate it in his way. He learns all about botany, mm. even though he may not continue to experience it in the moment. Mm. And I think the important thing is that one's not better than the other. Yeah. There is no intrinsic value to the approach to experience. You know, in, in modern times, I hear about people who go places and take pictures all the time, bloody tourists, or who are always taking selfies, mm. you know, and it's, it's negging people for the way they choose to have their experiences and participate in their experiences. Like, don't fucking do that, man. Mm. You know, it, one, nobody cares about your opinion. Two, you're purposefully limiting yourself through that reflection. Mm. You're going, oh, that person is doing this behavior. I don't like it. Therefore, I can't engage in this behavior. So why cut off options? Mm. Why cut off experiences? Especially if you've never experienced it before. You know, that's that's not a good idea. It's like walking down the forest path and seeing a branch and going, ew, and putting a gate down over it without ever going down the path mm. and seeing what's there. Yeah, everybody experiences things in their own way. So, I mean, I might experience things in my way and somebody goes, ew, to me, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, absolutely. We all have to appreciate beauty in our own way was exactly what Winston uh, was talking about. Sorry, I just mm -hmm. had this, I, I saw this crack go over my head then. It's, uh, it's the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bit worried. 
head splitting open and letting the light out. Stay in, stay in. <laughs> Don't come out. Not finished yet. <laughs> like when you take the, your soul and you're like, get back in the pot. <laughs> I do like it when uh, Trimon calls, calls on death and he was at the party. <laughs> I was at the party. Because they're holding the cocktail or the cheese. Yep, yep. Uh, that's great. And it says, uh, I, th I think it might go downhill at midnight. Why? That's when they think I'll take be taking my mask off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. Uh, and I love how, you know, the wit the wizards are all super formal about it. We must perform the rite of Ashkente. Mm. Uh, you know, and then they just kind of hurl questions at death. You know, what is this? What is that? And it's very formal and very forceful. And death is just like, just kind of having a conversation with them mm. is, is definitely not the same energy from either side. And, and it makes me think of watching people do spirit conjurations early on yep. where they're just forcefully hurling these questions and the spirit's just like yo you called me man yeah i was doing things especially the, <laughs> like especially i'll the answer your questions yeah. right i'll answer your questions and stuff but chill you know <laughs> but that's the whole thing i mean because when when we think of like uh evocation work like the goesha i mean it People usually come into it first with the ceremonial magic approach, and that's exactly what those wizards are. They're the ceremonial mm -hmm. magicians, and it's all mm -hmm. this formality, and you have to do it the, the exact right way, and you know you have all these rituals that have to go A, B, C, D, and all this formality and pomp and and whatnot. And then they sit, they stand there, and they they call this spirit, and uh, as you say, it's like all this like forceful sort of you know formal questioning and everything else but it's just a spirit you know you can sit there and have a bloody conversation and a cup of tea with them right and and offer them a cup of tea yeah by word that's a polite way to do things if you call someone and and conjure them into your space mm. you transport them somewhere you at least need a beverage waiting <laughs> In fact, what's interesting <laughs> is if you go on to uh, demonsanddemonology.org, I think it's .org, not .com, uh, remember correctly, I'll find out now. Um, it, it, has, it examines all the different uh, demons, especially from the Goetia. And where they've worked with one of the demons, they actually, you know, they give the correspondences and everything else. But there's always a tea. This one likes yes. Old Grey Tea. This one likes this tea. Um, so they yep. all, they always have tea with their demons. You must remember that. <laughs> uh, sorry, yeah. this dot com. Yeah. Well, and if you don't know what the tea is for some reason, good clean water is always a good option. Yeah. It is the yeah. default. You know, um, water is a medium that is necessary for spirit manifestation, but there's also all the fucking mystery about waters of life and sustaining. I mean, humans don't last super long without water. Mm. We need it. I know a lot of people are like, I don't drink water. I just drink coffee or whatever. But you need, <laughs> <laughs> you need liquids, right? You need yeah. liquids. And good, clean water is a 
I don't want to say transaction, hospitality. Mm. It is good hospitality. Um, no matter what realm you're working in, no matter what spirits you're working with, it's one of those defaults. Mm. You know, and I, a lot of people are like, well, how do I get started with spirit work? Well, light a candle and get a glass of water. Yeah. You know, that that's your super basic stuff. But then, you know, you can always make tea. Mm. And generally speaking, if you're going to meet a spirit of any kind, demon, angel, whatever, gnome, anything, you should drink the same things they're drinking. Mm. Or that they you know, like. Um, mm. Or that they like. Just the same way that when you meet someone to negotiate, you break bread and drink wine together to show that you're trustworthy and you're not poisoning them. Mm. You know, it's like the traditional encore pork handshake. After carefully checking for hidden poison darts, mm -hmm. then you shake hands, as is polite. Mm -hmm. It's the same idea. But that's, that's, Establish that's, trust. That's the same as the old tradition of um, used to, you don't handshake. You actually grab each other's right. arm and shake. And you actually, right. the shaking was to try and shake any knives that are actually hidden up the sleeves. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't go for the full pat down these days. Do you have any weapons? <laughs> Depends Wires? what she looks like. <laughs> <laughs> it's not our, our societal norm. Uh, but, you know, still, a lot of our ideas about what is polite and how you greet people are based on those fundamental, um, you can trust me not to cause you bodily harm. Mm. You know, we can be in grit. And before you can establish frith, before you can establish an abundant relationship of mutual aid, you have to establish grith of, I'm not going to kill you right now. And just like you do that with other humans and you do that with other animals, you know, you have to get the dog to trust you, to get the cat to trust you, those sorts of things. You do it mm. with other spirits too. Yeah. And so, you know, calling someone and yelling questions at them forcefully and not letting them finish their answers and not giving them anything drink or eat they're not going to be nice to you mm. they're not going to come to value time with you or they need to give you good answers either yeah you can do all the abjurations you want to bind the spirit to truthfulness to only give you you know the the true information and if you're an asshole you'll end up with the trickster ideals mm. of a spirit that technically gives you truth but often make sure you fall on your ass because that's what I would do if somebody was constantly conjuring me and being an asshole and I had no choice but to tell the truth. Yeah. Be like, oh, yeah, I'll get you money, fucker. <laughs> I'm going to kill your grandma. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's so, how it works. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you want to avoid unforeseen consequences, don't be a dick. It's <laughs> I, I always say, if you want to know how the spirits work, how would you react to it to somebody doing X, Y, and Z? Yeah, you know? yeah. If they call, if they call you into this triangle, which they've made into a trap, that is binding you, and they threaten you, threaten to burn you, and everything else, how the fuck are you going to react? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, they're probably going to react the same way. But on the other hand of that, always test the spirits. Oh, yeah. Um, it might not be the one you were calling. Yeah. Mm. And, and 
always be wary of the one who shows up that you didn't call. Mm. You know? Yeah. I, I, I trust tutelary spirits. I trust, you know, spirits that I have identified in that sort of thing. But spirits are people too. And they have their own agenda. And you should be aware of that. Mm. That it's, it's not just all love and light because they don't have a body. Yeah. Some of them can be arseholes. Mm -hmm. Especially if, so if the person calling is an arsehole. They're just going to be yeah. an arsehole back. But, yeah, if, if you start the, the conversation off on, you know, I abjure you and I'm going to burn you and I'm going to torture you in all of these ways, want. Mm. There's no friendship coming out of that. No. And when they break loose, they're going to just, you know, give you a bit of due taste, taste of your own medicine at the end of the day. Right. <laughs> Cuff you gently about the head and shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how it, like, you like being burned. Psst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think the ultimate lesson of the wizards is that ambition and magic don't mix very well. Mm. <laughs> At least not um, ambition for rising in the ranks. No. But knock everybody off. <clears throat> the wizards have codified magic. They've turned it into a university with grades and levels and, and everything else. And because they have limited it in such a way, they've literally limited the options for growth. Mm. And so the only way to get a higher rank is to step into another wizard's shoes. And, you know, that structure isn't great, but the wizards don't really see it. And there's definitely been an edifice to the point that they now can't change that structure. Mm. They are trapped in it. You know, they've got this whole system. And so I think that's something to contemplate when it comes to how we blend magic and mundane together. Mm. Because I mean, if you, that's, I'm not a fan of separating the magic out from the mundane or never doing magic to influence our mundane circumstances, uh, you know, just because you can do magic starving doesn't mean you need to. Mm. That sort of thing. And I don't think money and ego and ambition are automatically evil. But limits, while necessary, sometimes outlive their purpose. And they end up producing uh, side effects that you don't necessarily uh, want to participate in. So it's always important to look with a keen eye and see... What is this really producing? What is the effect here? What is actually happening as these two things intersect, as we mix them back together? You know, how much of the, the mundane structure is influencing the magic and what can come through and mm -hmm. what is allowed to manifest? You know, um, in the longer Discworld arc, the witches can do magic that the wizards can't. Yeah. And... It's because of, specifically, Granny Weatherwax points out that it's because they're in that edifice structure thing. They've bought into the system and understand it as the totality of the understanding of magic. And of course, they know it. Why wouldn't it be the totality of things if they didn't know it? Mm. But it turns out, no, magic's a little more tricky than that. And uh, 
could do some other things, but since the wizards don't believe, um, well, it's not don't believe. The wizards believe they know everything, therefore they do. Hmm. But there's all this stuff outside of everything that they don't know, and therefore they can't do. Yeah. So they're just, they've, they've confined themselves to one little compartment, and they can't see beyond it, which a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there are great things to be said for focus, especially early on in learning. I, I do think you should, like, limit yourself to one path, one tradition, one cosmology, one mythology, one culture, when you're learning. Mm. But eventually you need to open back up and, and find other things and compare and contrast and that sort of thing. Um, even if it is just to inform you more about your understanding of the thing you originally chose. Mm. But um, that permanent limit especially the idea that this is all what I know is all mm. that's that's shooting yourself in the foot yeah. every time yeah. when it comes down to I mean even if you have been practicing for a long time when I do it myself where I come across a new concept or a new path that I want to actually look into and understand they practice it a certain way and as I'm walking down that path I think okay well that makes sense to me from the perspective of this that I've learned in the past therefore I'm going to do it this way my way and I don't think that's right I think you need to practice that path specifically as it's defined once you understand it then you can start changing and molding it to fit your own paradigm but before then you've got to understand it otherwise you know, just trying to bring all your bits in and hammer it into it before you understand it is just ridiculous. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Um, you can't you can't bend the rules until you're well enough first to write them. Mm. And when you are reading them and you're not to the end of the list, you are not well enough first to write them. Yeah. So you need to learn the practices, you need to learn the cosmology, you need to complete the course curriculum, you need to, you know, learn the whole system before you start mucking about with things. Mm. And you may get insights along the way, write them down, come back to them later when it's time to try something else. It may turn out that later you've learned more things that make that insight not so sound, which is usually what I find. I go back and I'm like, oh, here's all the things I didn't know when I thought that. Mm. Here's all the other things I didn't know when I thought that. (laughs) And this blows that out of the water. You know, yeah. so. Yeah. Well, things mixed together, but uh, just got to be careful of how you mix them. Yeah. yeah, humans are humans, and we have human experiences, and I think magic, I like the way magic is portrayed in the disc world because it's just seen as another natural force. It's like gravity. Mm. You know, it's just a thing that's there, and the people interact with it in different ways. So I I think of it, that's a good analogy for magic in in our world, is that it is its own force. Mm -hmm. And we interact with it in different ways. We come to understand it in different ways. Um, We create theories about it to try to explain it. We test them. Sometimes they work, sometimes they fail. And we refine our understanding through interaction and experience. That doesn't ever mean 
that we like absolutely for sure know everything. Yeah. And, and as soon as you draw that curtain around and go, this is all, mm-hmm. that's a mess. Yeah. Okay. So we've covered everything we can think of at the moment, uh, but this is such a wonderful movie. And of course, all of the disc world is such a wonderful world. I'm sure we miss things. So when you go watch this, you need to go watch this. Uh, let us know what other magical bits we missed and what you think of them or um, if they relate to your magic or anything like that, because we will learn so many things from your perspective that is definitely different than ours. Mm-hmm. And read the books also. Um, that is The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, let us know. All right, so that's it for this review the color of magic and uh we will be back with another fantastic review because we're just good reviewers Uh, and this is super fun and this is super fun yes (laughs) (laughs) all right so if you are watching this and you're not a supporter and you want to watch both of the reviews every month then remember hop on over to patreon and buy me a coffee uh, links will be in the, in the description wherever you're watching this um, so hop over there and become a supporter and you can get and it's only three dollars only three dollars we're, we're yeah. cheap yeah. <laughs> yeah. we're very cheap we're, we're, we're cheap dates yeah <laughs> all right thanks very much uh, thanks for watching hope you enjoyed it and as we said if you've got any comments anything you uh, thought that we missed Just let us know, and uh, we'll cover it at some stage. All right. Have a great one. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.